Let me ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. I'm going to lean on your prior knowledge of John 19 and 20. We're just going to read a little section, and then we're going to jump to Revelation. Of course, John is the author of both. And John 20 paves the way very well for Revelation 21 and 22. Let's hear God's word, John 20 verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And later... Revelation 21, 1 through 5, the, the vision given to this same other disciple, John, by Jesus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who, has, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And 22.1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree, with the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
and the grass withers, the flowers fade, and this very, very good word endures forever. Let's pray the prayer, famous prayer in the history of the church for our prayer of illumination. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort from your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life that you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this acclamation for Resurrection Sunday together. Christ has risen. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Well, in this sermon, I want to build on the verses we read in the um, God cleanses us by his grace, the first Peter verses, apply those to the John text. But if you, if you remember in that reading, there was that phrase, the phrase said, might you set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now think of that phrase. Might you today set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you at that coming day. And the other texts define what that grace to be revealed is. It's that inheritance that will not perish, will not spoil, will not fade. And it's grounded in a work now based on Jesus' resurrection when he says that you have been born again into this living hope by the resurrection from the dead, that it's because of Jesus' resurrection that he has power to give you a new heart so that you can believe this gospel and you can be found squarely in this pathway where the living Savior guards and keeps you all the way to this inheritance which will neither perish, spoil, or fade. Is your hope today fully connected, engaged with this grace to be revealed? What better Lord's Day than Easter Sunday to grow a little bit in that, that our hearts will be fully set on this grace. So back when I was working accounting in another life, I went out to lunch with my father and he had asked a business acquaintance to go with us. And so on the way to lunch, dad starts talking about the gospel with his acquaintance. I think he must have said something like one of those evangelism explosion questions. Have you come to the place in your life where if you died today, you know you would go to heaven? I was kind of looking at my dad. He was asking that to his friend. And his friend responded to that in a way that really surprised me, shocked me at that point. He said, well, I don't think much about what happens after death. I try to focus on the here and now. It kind of surprised me. And they went on talking from there. And yet since that day, I've looked at my own self and I've wondered how fully, how fully is your heart set on the grace to be revealed? It's a really penetrating question that the resurrection of Jesus asks us today. Tim Keller published a book uh, back in 
2021, he published a book on, on death. And it was the fruit of years of pastoral ministry comforting dying people. However, he tells the Atlantic Magazine in a real open, honest article they wrote for him that one month after publishing that book, one month after it came out into print, he discovered he had pancreatic cancer. And so feverishly, he finds out that diagnosis and begins to scour the internet for survival statistics. And then he says he caught sight of his book. And he didn't dare open it. Because at that point, a thought arose that he didn't realize he had prior to his diagnosis an attitude about his own death. He said, what? No, I can't die. That happens to others, not me. What he counseled about God's nature and Jesus' resurrection and life after death, he realized at that point was to a large extent for himself personally still abstract and theoretical, kind of like stage props of a war movie instead of real fortifications and real weapons in the reality of a war. And he realized at that moment it hadn't gripped his heart and captured his imagination, but if he were going to make it now, it had to, more than death had, it had to capture his imagination in order to make it through the day, not give in to fear, and make the most of his time to grow in grace. So again, I wonder for myself and us, are we today setting our hope fully on the grace to be revealed, or is it really abstract and theoretical for us? Has it gripped our hearts and captured our imagination? The 19th century theologian Charles Hodge said it this way, The whole daily life of the Christian is founded on the hope of the resurrection every day. C.S. Lewis responded to some statement someone made to him that said, well, that guy's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And he responded this way, Well, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get nothing. So to what degree are we unconsciously being squeezed in by our culture? Are we giving in to our cultures? tenacious denial of death? And do, have we given in to our culture's view that this world really is all that exists? Or at least this is all the world that really matters. To live well now, you and I have to train our hearts and imaginations to be gripped by glory. And so we go to John 19 and 20. We know that Jesus died an excruciating death. Excruciating comes from out of the cross. He was very dead. John 19 says that even after dying, a Roman soldier passed by. Well, the Roman soldier keeping watch, and he was trained and highly skilled killer. He thrusts 
expertly his spear in Jesus's right rib in such a way that it perforated his right lung and perforated his heart, which resulted in that blood and water coming out, that pericardial fluid. Jesus was dead. He was beaten, scourged, crucified, nailed, suffocated, and stabbed to death. He was dead. John 19 goes on to say that a secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, asks Pilate for his body. He lays him in his brand new tomb near Golgotha, The ladies witnessed where he laid it. Together with Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, another secret disciple, Nicodemus, they embalmed Jesus' body. And they tightly wind him up and bind him with linen cloths. And then they cover him with 75 pounds of spices, which would then harden over the bindings. So with the other gospel writers, we learn all the precautions set in place to guard Jesus' body in the tomb from any potential thief or disciple that would steal it. So they place a great stone on the opening to the tomb. It would take up to maybe even 20 men to roll that stone. They put a Roman seal on it, meaning we would know if it were broken. Also, if you tamper with it, you're getting the wrath of Rome upon you. Four specially trained soldiers, a Roman guard, were ordered to keep vigil on his tomb upon pain of death that they failed. Yet with all this, Jesus resurrects. He resurrects from the inside of the tomb. And then angels come down to announce it. And they cause an earthquake, they move the stone, and they lay the soldiers out cold. Mary Magdalene and the other women come to the tomb first, And they see the stone rolled away. They run and tell Peter and John. They both run back to the tomb. They go inside and John sees it. He sees the linen cloths there. And he sees and he believes. He believes though, as John 20 verse 9 says, he doesn't understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. Like he hasn't worked it out theologically. He hasn't reasoned it from scripture yet. He just looks at the cloths and says, he rose and he believes. You see, John, like a good Jew, did believe in the final resurrection at the end of history. The general revelation when God winds up all of history, when he judges the wicked and he gives new bodies to his people and he remakes the world, he, 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 believes this. John 11, Martha looks at Jesus as Lazarus is in the tomb and says, I know he will rise at the resurrection on the last day. They believed in that, but they hadn't understood yet from the Old Testament. No one did. No one was expecting it. It caught them all off guard that in order for that to happen, one man, the Messiah, who had to be God and man, he'd have to suffer for the sins of the people. And then he'd have to rise within history from the dead in order to establish and set in motion the final resurrection. That had to happen first in order for the other to happen at the end of history. And that's the mystery of scripture. Jesus says he must rise from the dead. So John doesn't figure it out. He doesn't reason through it at this point. It comes later. In fact, Jesus has to explain it to him. Rather, he looks at Jesus' grave clothes in the niche 
They're laid out as they would have been were Jesus' body still inside of them. They're intact. They're still covered with spices, not strewn around, not damaged as they would be were a grave robber to have disturbed things. And he sees and believes based on that evidence, that evidence that he rose through the grave clothes And that's even before the real clincher that it's not just an empty tomb that proves the resurrection, but it's that through that period of 40 days, how Jesus appeared to so many, Peter and Mary Magdalene, the ladies, the two men heading to Emmaus, then 500 people at one time, different people at different times and in different places, that when the apostles started preaching, were all alive. And when the New Testament was being written, most were alive. And yet, affirming, approving, never contesting. And then these 11 timid disciples all of a sudden are overwhelmed with courage and the small group of believers explodes and the church spreads across the empire. The evidence for the resurrection is so strong, so strong. And so what is it when we say Jesus resurrected from the dead? What clues do we get even in John 20? Well, it says that Jesus rose body and soul from the dead. He didn't just resuscitate like Lazarus in chapter 11. Jesus raises Lazarus, but remember, he has to tell folks, unbind him, let him go free. Lazarus would die again. He rose to a mortal life. What we see with Jesus is he rose through the grave clothes. He was distinct and different. Mary encounters him and doesn't doesn't really recognize him right off the bat. There's something unique about him now. He appears behind locked doors and then disappears again. After 40 days, he ascends as they watch him to another dimension. His body has new properties. It's a glorified body. And at the same time, it is his body. It's the same body in which he suffered when he speaks Mary's name as he would have when she followed him. He knows her and speaks her name and she recognizes him. When he appears to his disciples, they recognize him. He even shows them the scars on his hands and side. He even lets Thomas place his hand, his finger in the wound in his hand and his hand in the wound in his side. And later, he actually sits around a campfire and eats fish with them. It's really him, his same body, but now glorified. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's a spiritual body, which doesn't mean it's immaterial. He's not a ghost. It means he's supernatural. It's a body now fit for an existence in another land dominated by the Spirit of God. It's a body appropriate for glory, for the new heavens and the new earth. As Paul says, even of our bodies, in Christ it was sown perishable, now it's raised imperishable. It was sown in dishonor, now it's raised in glory. It was sown in weakness, now it's raised in power. There's continuity with his earthly body, yet amazing discontinuity. Like a small grain of wheat has continuity with a field full of wheat blowing in the wind, and yet you'd never look at a grain of wheat, and ever in your wildest dreams, if you'd never seen it, imagine it would be a wheat field. 
or if you took a little acorn and you found outside has continuity with a majestic oak tree or oak forest, but you never look at an acorn and say, ah yes, an oak forest, and yet it's continuity with it. And what all does this mean for us? What all does this mean for us? You see, Jesus doesn't just survive death. He doesn't just eke out an existence after death. It's not just life after death, a shadowy life. Sin and death would have won were that the case because that would mean that sin and death had really thwarted God's good intent for his creation. But God loves his creation. He loves bodies and souls. Jesus rising glorified means that he pummeled death, beat death, conquered death resoundingly in all the works of the evil one. He rises with a glorified body and soul which God always intended for his people to have. Jesus works sufficient to completely overturn the curse. Just think of some of the spiritual benefits you and I enjoy now in Jesus' resurrection See, John 19.30, Jesus on the cross declares, it's finished. It's, it's finished. Like everything is done. He means I fully paid for your sins. Like all of it. And since death is the judicial sentence against sin, therefore if Jesus paid for fully for our sins, then he must walk out of the prison house of death. He must. And he does. He walks out body and soul. And then he says when he appears to his disciples, the first words out of his mouth are, peace be with you. Which says, look, I did it. I made the peace. I've made the peace. In fact, he's going to end up calling them brothers, as Jeremy beautifully said this morning. It's not just peace for a people. It's you're totally reconciled to me. You're not those no good, dirty, rotten disciples who abandoned me. You're my brothers. I made the peace. And so we think of Jesus' resurrection and what that means for you right now as you sit here. By faith in Jesus... Jesus' resurrection proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the death sentence has been fully satisfied and your sins are forgiven. It's also the moment in which the father looked at his son who had been tried at the court of humanity and condemned and the father looked at his son and says, you are righteous and that's my verdict over you. I overturn man's verdict. Because God declares him righteous, you know what that means for you today, that you in him by faith are declared righteous. And then the fact that he is risen in power from the dead means that he's armed with all power. All power is given to him. And that means he can take out a stony heart and give a fleshy heart. He give you new birth. And that means he can give you faith to believe the gospel. And that means he can take your life 
my life riddled with sin and habits and pitfalls, and he can shape it, mold it, and make it holy, and that means he can keep you all the way to glory. And no one and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. What about this glorious inheritance to which you and I are going in Christ? When we look at Jesus' resurrection body, we see what God's going to do for the whole created order. When we see Jesus' resurrected body, we see what he's going to do for us. He will glorify us body and soul and fit us for glory. We see hints of that even in John 20 because the ladies go to the tomb on the first day of the week. And yet Jesus always said, I'm going to rise on the third day. Why do the gospel writers always say they go on the first day of the week except to tell you something theological that Jesus' resurrection inaugurates the first day of God's new creation. And when you enter by faith in a relationship with Jesus, you step into a new world and a new belonging. In fact, your citizenship is already in heaven. And furthermore, when Mary looks at Jesus, is that wonderful little detail. Well, first, the wonderful detail of John that Joseph of Arimathea's tomb is located by Golgotha, but in a garden. He says it twice. He wants you to know that. And then when Mary looks at Jesus, she supposes him to be the gardener, which is a beautiful irony. He's not the gardener, but is he the gardener? <laughs> is he really the gardener? I think what John really wants us to say is he wasn't the common gardener, but he's the master gardener. We've got three master gardeners, at least in our church. He's the master gardener, the new Adam, who's making all things new. What does that look like? Well, it's no surprise. John's the one that tells us. And we jump to Revelation. And in Revelation 21, we see a new heaven and a new earth. And new doesn't mean that God scrapped the old and started fresh. New means he took the old and the broken and the messed up and the fallen and reshaped it and repurified it and made it qualitatively different, which is what he does for us. And so this holy city, the new Jerusalem, descends from heaven, which is really the glorified saints. Like we're the city indwelt by the, temp, by the Spirit, awaiting resurrection, descend to earth. Heaven, the control room of creation, descends to earth, wraps itself around earth. God makes his throne on earth and dwells with his glorified people. And he removes any trace of curse, no more Tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. All things are new. And in Revelation 22, he goes on to say, the throne in the Lamb, and calling Jesus the Lamb, highlights the fact that he still bears the scars of his suffering, which are not a cause of shame, but a cause of glory, which accentuates his majesty in heaven, which bears significance for us as well. And from the throne of God and the Lamb flows an abundant river, and it's bright as crystal running down the gold streets of Main Street. And on either side of the river, there's, a tree, there's the tree of life, which really means the forest of trees of life on each side of the river that bear 12 kinds of fruit. Both of those descriptions, the river and the trees of life, are just describing Eden renewed and fulfilled 
The river symbolizes the abundant blessing and satisfaction and enjoyment of God's people, the tree of life, the healing of the nations, the superabundance of life and vitality and glory and the love and favor of God. And we remember that the first Adam, when he sinned, we were cut off from the garden and the cherubim waved their sword. And now Jesus, the second Adam, went under the sword on our behalf and opened up Eden and a forest of trees of life for us, much greater. And the blessing of blessings is that you and I behold Jesus face to face. And you remember that God said to Moses, you can't see me and live, but in glory we behold him face to face. It's the heart of heaven. Jesus' resurrection opens all this up to us. He gives us these privileges as a gift to be received by faith. The question is, have you received these gifts by faith? This is the real world. Are you grounding your daily life in the resurrection? Back in 1723, Jonathan Edwards penned a list of resolutions. One resolution goes like this, resolve to live with all my might while I live. Second, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. I want happiness in the next world, he says. Far from being escapist, remember Lewis's quote, seeking happiness in the next world gives us happiness in the present because we're designed for that. So how, how? I've got a few things I wanna say real quick. If you'd bear with me another five minutes or so. A basic way to seek to be happy in glory is to set our hearts fully on the spiritual blessings you have been given now. Imagine by the resurrection of Christ, you're given new birth and faith, the forgiveness of sins, declared righteous, kept for glory by a living Savior, cared for by a living Savior. that you know a savior who says Mary to a broken-hearted lady, and he knows your name as well. We seek to be happy in the next world by meditating on scripture about the new world, exercising our minds and imaginations in Isaiah and Ezekiel and John and Paul and Jesus. Our world seems to block us off from that. So John Newton writes a pastoral letter in which he's trying to uplift one of, the, one of his parishioners. He says, happiness in heaven makes you happier now. And he says, imagine that veil in glory to be very thin and that even now you're in the midst of that glorious assembly. And then he says, looking at Jesus's glorified body, Imagine that you could pass from one extreme of creation to the other extreme of creation with a thought, even as Jesus passed through the doors and disappeared from the room. Charles Hodge says, imagine that you have different senses that can experience even new things in the new heavens and new earth. Lewis says, 
from the word glory, meaning heavy, imagine that you were more solid in glory. And that's why Jesus passed through, not less solid, but more. C.S. Lewis counsels, when you have good gifts, you need to be grateful for them, but then pass up the gift. Trace it up to God and say, what must my God be like who makes such gifts for his people? And what must glory be like if these are so good? And when we got what we wanted and we recognized it didn't really satisfy us, which happens far too often, instead of being dejected and depressed, why don't we shift and say, wait a second, that never was intended to give me full satisfaction. It was only a little glimmer of glory that God used in my way to point me as a signpost to himself. What might that tell me of glory? And then we look at people, we look at people, and recognize people will be eternal. And they will either be a horror that we would only ever see in a nightmare if they don't know Christ, or they would be a being so glorious that we would be tempted to fall down and worship them in Christ. Jonathan Edwards discusses this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, another reason. From the verse, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Or 1 Corinthians 15, at the conclusion of the resurrection chapter, when Jesus says, or Paul says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. From all that, he says, well, how do we live here if all that is the case? Urges us to grow, grow in love and service, reflecting Christ, speaking gospel. Why? In his mind, it increases our capacity for happiness in eternity. It's a way to increase our capacity. Not that anyone will not be happy in glory. All vessels will be full. But what Edwards is saying is some vessels will be greater than other vessels and therefore able to experience even greater love and humility and happiness and glory. This doesn't mean there is tension in heaven between those with bigger vessels and those with smaller. For those that have greater degrees of glory are full of even greater love and service for those with less. And those with less are so awed by that sense that he who is honored, we all are honored. But the idea of increasing our capacity And so Johnny Erickson, who has so much authority, having suffered in a wheelchair for 50 plus years as a quadriplegic, two bouts with cancer, a lot of pain, she often says that she wishes she could have her wheelchair right beside her when Jesus gives her her glorified body. And you say, why would she want that? She says she'll turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now you can send it to hell. And she has this sense of increasing her capacity, that the more she knew Jesus here, the more she expressed his love and service here, the more it increased her joy in heaven. 
And then she says so movingly, as much as she wants a glorified body, the thing she's most looking forward to is no sin nature and to see Christ face to face. You see, John 20, Jesus appears to his disciples and he commissions them, which is really odd that after he did all the work, he commissions a bunch of disciples. As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you, he says. We go, why in the world? And yet, you see, God does things that way. The resurrection of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth in no way is a time for us to fold our hands. It's the stewardship commended to us in some way beyond our expectation. In some way, our living now prepares for eternity, builds for the new heavens and new earth, anticipates it, even enhances our experience of glory because God uses our stewardship to renew the world. God uses our faithfulness, even in some way, to prepare for the new heavens and the new earth. A number of years ago, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a short story called Leaf by Niggle. Sometimes you and I get frustrated with our fruitfulness, frustrated with our work, wondering if it's doing any good. So he writes this story, Leaf by Niggle. And niggle is a funny word. It means fiddling and ineffective, which sometimes I feel like. And this character, Niggle, is an artist. Well, Lewis... Tolkien writes the book because it's autobiographical because he was so frustrated with himself that he couldn't finish Lord of the Rings. So Niggle's this artist, he's a painter and he's trying to complete his life work. He's painting this beautiful, great, huge tree and he just wants to get it done before he dies. But all these problems happen, all these distractions occur and he dies without finishing it. And he feels like such a failure that he didn't get to see his life work accomplished. Then all of a sudden, he's in glory. He's in the new heavens and the new earth. And he walks up this sunlit hill. He feels the sun on his face, beautiful fields. And then he rounds this curve in the trail and walks up the hill and all of a sudden he stops cold because to his utter amazement, he sees his tree. The one he conceived in his mind when he labored at so long and so hard and didn't get to finish. And he realizes it's his tree now finished and perfect. And it builds on 1 Corinthians 15 that your labor is never in vain. Your fruitfulness is never in vain because Jesus rose from the dead. And in some way it endures, contributes, and enhances glory. So therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And might we set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed and be men and women and boys and girls grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may it be so. And God's people said, amen.